Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing... The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Ce qui se passe dans les bois est un véritable podcast sur la criminalité. Nous discutons d'événements qui sont souvent de nature violente. La discrétion de l'auditeur est conseillée. What Happens in the Woods is a true crime podcast. We discuss events that are often violent in nature. Listener's discretion is advised. There are flaws in the justice system that lead to thousands of people being wrongfully convicted of crimes they didn't commit every year. False confessions, false statements by witnesses, evidence used incorrectly... All of these things and more contribute to the constant issue of miscarriages of justice in our society. We've teamed up to bring these cases to light, to make it more widely known just how frequently this is happening in communities around us and how incredibly hard it is to fix this issue within the system. The cases we will be sharing are haunting reminders that justice is indeed blind, even when faced with the truth. Hi. I'm Elise from the podcast True Crime Cat Lawyer. Every other Thursday, my cat Winston and I tell stories of unsolved murders, serial killers, missing persons, and so much more from our neck of the woods, the Pacific Northwest. As someone whose brother was incarcerated for nearly eight years, I have a special place in my heart for incarcerated individuals, particularly those who were convicted as juveniles and those who were wrongfully convicted. And this is Jess from the podcast, What Happens in the Woods. We have been fascinated with the Pacific Northwest and the never-ending supply of true crime cases since relocating here in 2018. We release on the first and third Fridays during our regular seasons and every Wednesday for our WTF series. When Elise asked Bryce and I to collaborate with her on cases of wrongful convictions, there was no way we were going to pass on the opportunity to shed light on this topic. Together, we've created a limited series that will highlight a variety of cases that you may or may not have already heard of. Our hope is to bring them to the forefront of the true crime community and to possibly help get more information out there on these cases. You're listening to a collaboration of the podcast True Crime Cat Lawyer and What Happens in the Woods on Wrongful Convictions. Let's get started. Hello, and welcome back to the second case we will be discussing in our collaboration with True Crime Cat Lawyer. Hello, Elise. Hello. 
So this is our collaboration with her and Winston on uh, Wrongful Convictions, a new series that we have um, decided that was so important that we had to tackle. We had to really get in and tackle some of these cases and talk about them. So this case that we're about to share and discuss is loaded. It is definitely a hot topic. It's a case where the nation's attention was hyper-focused on this outcome Uh, Media outlets from everywhere were reporting hourly on, you know, the TV showing coverage of this trial, the trials, multiple trials as they hit. Newspapers were giving this case front page coverage for weeks. Um, There were special investigative stories released on like group discussions and interviews. Um, It it was a circus. Um, There was no let up of the just pounding of this this coverage into the the public and it it really had a lot of um social tension uh racial tension there were very strong undercurrents that have long lasting effects from this case since um you know most recently there have been two documentaries uh one very recent netflix docuseries there was actually an opera that was done on this. I, I did not know that. And a mini series on the topic of this case. And what we will be discussing today is the haunting story of the convictions of Corey Wise, Kevin Richardson, Yusuf Salam, Antron McRae, and Raymond Santana. Or as you probably will recognize the names, they are known as the Central Park Five. Much like our first episode in the series, this is going to be a multiple part episode just because there is so much information with the background being handled by us and the legal proceedings being handled by Elise and Winston from True Crime Cat Lawyer. If you haven't listened to that episode on the Dixmore Five already and um, that victim, Katrisa Matthews, make sure you head over to where you find your podcasts and get caught up. That case much like this one deals with teenagers who were convicted of a horrible crime and had to grow up very quickly to navigate the justice system in just horrible circumstances. And as always, we want our listeners to use their judgment when listening to us discuss these crimes. Our case today deals with sexual assault, violence, and as I said, racial tensions and social injustices. So please listen responsibly. Before I forget, Hi, Bryce. Hello. You have any updates for us? <laughs> I don't have any updates. You thought you were going to get away. I wasn't going to say hi, huh? Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. All right. Are we ready to get started with this one? Yes. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to walk us through the events on the night of April 19th, 1989. As mentioned, there are ultimately five young men who were convicted in connection to a crime that took place that night. In regards to one particular victim, I'm going to give you a little more of that story. We're going to go through things in a timeline. And as mentioned, these events took place on the night of April 19th, 1989 in Central Park, New York City. It was around 9 p.m. that a large group of teens described as primarily African-American and Hispanic somewhere between 30 to 40 teens entered Central Park North from uh, Harlem. It's unclear really how the group came together or exactly what the purpose was at first. It seems likely that this was just something that, you know, just kind of started as a few people saying, hey, let's head to the park. 
And as people were walking by and getting, you know, getting closer to the park, there may be some people that they saw along the way. And, you know, the group may have said, hey, a bunch of us are headed to the park. Let's go. And as more and more kids joined in, it just kind of got to be this large group. And, you know, kind of like a friend of a friend invite thing. I A lot of these people maybe knew each other, maybe knew of each other, had seen each other on the streets. Not everybody was on first name basis. Not everybody really even knew each other. Some of these kids that just kind of got roped into this may not have known anybody in that group. However, this, you know, large group amassed, things quickly turned from a group of kids going to the park to a group of kids engaging in senseless, violent acts on random people. They broke off in kind of groups, some running ahead, some holding back at a slower pace, and they were just kind of dispersing throughout the park. Not long after these teens entered the park, calls began coming into 911 dispatch in rapid succession of people reporting attacks, um, you know, bicyclists, joggers, there was even a report of rocks and sticks being thrown at a taxi cab. There was just numerous reports coming in. And later on, I, I believe that I read that there was reports that hadn't even come in yet of other attacks that, you know, just weren't, they didn't come in that night at that time. The first known reported attack that took place inside Central Park was at 9.05 p.m., the victim was uh, Michael Vigna, who at the time of his attack was riding a bicycle on East Drive around 105th Street. He claimed as he rode his bike that a teenager from the group tried to swing out and throw a punch at him. He seemingly was not injured. He was able to get away to safety. No idea why the attack started. He, has, he had no idea. The next attack was just minutes later. The timeline of this is between 9.05 p.m. and 9.15 p.m. Based on other st statements from other victims and witnesses, um, police can kind of gather that the timeline is pretty tight on that one. So Antonio Diaz was walking near 103rd Street by where it would cross East Drive, near where the other bicyclist was attacked. There was a group of teens that attacked him. The group rushed him, got him to the ground where they proceeded to kick him and beat him, took a bag that had beer and food in it, and he just was left on the ground as the group moved on. And then the timeline is solidified because the bag of empty beer was seen by the next victims on the path at 9.15 p.m. So there's two people that came by on a tandem bike that they were riding on that path. They encountered this group. So Jerry Malone and Patricia Dean were riding their two-seater bike on East Drive, just around 102nd Street. They claimed the path was completely blocked by a group of young men. And when Malone realized that they weren't moving, he quickly gained speed to, you know, gain momentum to just force them to part. They were going to break through the barricade, basically. They weren't going to stop. And as they, you know, cleared through this group of guys, some of them moved to the side. Dean claimed that as, you know, they were getting through, there were guys that were trying to grab her and pull her off from this group. She, they managed to, you know, get away. They were able to get to a police call box and they called in and reported the incident. From there, there's a little bit of a gap in time of, you know, what police put together about 10, 15 minutes. Presumably, as the group was getting further down the paths and into the park, they turned to a popular place for joggers to run along known as the reservoir. 
the first victim jogging along this section of the park has a l- pretty big time variance from between 925 to 940. I believe, however, initially it was reported to be 925 and that later on he was pressed and he said, I don't know, it could have been as late as 940. Okay. I mean, you're out in the park, you don't have, no- maybe you got a watch on, but if you're serious, like a lot of these people were, like the bicyclists were, um, you know, they competitive. Yeah. So they keep track of their time because they want to know what their time is so that they're getting better. Yeah. They want to know how many miles or, you know, how far they can go in a certain amount of time. They're trying to, you know, track their progress. Some people are just out walking. You know, this guy might not have had a watch. He might not have been by anywhere where there was a clock. So he's like, yeah, I don't know. Could have been as late as. So he wasn't training for a marathon. He wasn't training for a marathon, I don't believe. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But he was out jogging. So David Lewis was attacked and robbed during this time. But as I said, wasn't able to pinpoint a time. The next attack was tracked at 9.30 p.m. from victim Robert Garner who he was also in that same area, the reservoir. He was able to pinpoint his time. Another attack that was quickly made after that at 937 was victim David Good. Though one of the worst attacks that I, out of what I've just mentioned was the last of victim John Laughlin. Laughlin was jogging along the reservoir, having been in the park for maybe about 10 minutes. That was before a group of teenage young men came upon him and brutally beat the man with a pipe and kicked him after being down on the ground. Again, there's really no sense to any of these crimes other than teenagers just getting out of control. I mean, the one guy was robbed of his beer and his food. That's a crime of opportunity. One of the victims, and I believe it's Laughlin, had his uh, Walkman stolen, maybe his wallet stolen, but it's mentioned in a few articles. I had a hard time solidifying that fact. Should, should we explain what a Walkman is? To yeah, the right. <laughs> <laughs> that was a very high tech technology. Yeah. yeah. At the time in 1989, especially if you were uh, serious into, you know, jogging and stuff like that. Yeah. You, you know, this was the precursor to the, the iPod or an MP3 player, which also a lot of people are going to be like, what? What is that? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Just think about something that played music and it was only music. And this, in this case, was something that played a cassette tape. It wasn't even a a (laughs) CD player. It was cassette tape. So he's hit pretty hard. He, He was pretty out of it, knocked unconscious, dazed, confused. By the last time, you know, by the time of these last attacks, police had responded already at the park and they were searching the park to investigate these crimes. Laughlin was found around 9.55 p.m. wandering in a daze by officers near the path where he had been jogging before the attack. So he he didn't, you know, wander too far. He was probably knocked unconscious for a little bit. He would be taken to the hospital where he spent two days getting treated for the severity of his injuries. One officer who found Laughlin stated he looked like, quote, he was dunked in a bucket of blood, quote, end quote. He was so bloody. So he was obviously hit repeatedly or with enough force. I mean, your head bleeds a lot. Yeah. However, if you're hit in the head with a pipe, that's pretty serious. Yes. Yeah. So as police swarmed in, a group of teens scattered. You know, they're hiding throughout the park. Attempts were made to flee. 
Police managed to take five young men into custody at the park that night as they tried to flee the scene, and they were arrested right outside of 102nd Street and Central Park West. In that group taken into custody and held at the Central Park precinct that night was Kevin Richardson and Raymond Santana. Both of these boys were aged 14. 14 years old. Yeah. A few hours later, the police were combing the park. You know, they're searching out if there's any more of the group that remained or if there were any other victims. Unfortunately, the worst of the crimes that took place that night were still undiscovered until the body of a woman was found off of one of the main paths in a ravine. So at about 1.30 a.m., the female victim was found in very critical condition by officers near 102nd Street. She had been brutally attacked and left for dead. It was clear that most of the attack had happened in the area where she was found as she nearly bled out at the location. Um, But she had been initially attacked some ways away. Investigators found clear drag marks where she had been dragged off of the path. It was about 300 feet into a deep secluded brush area where the actual, uh, you know, attacks were made. They suspected that the attacker had hit her on the back of her head with a tree limb, which caused her to be dazed, allowing her attacker to drag her quickly out of sight. Photographs of the scene clearly show, um, from what I read, 18-inch wide path and one set of footprints. And it's clear. The victim was transferred to Metropolitan Hospital in East Harlem, and she was evaluated. The reports I read list her injuries as the falling, and, and they're extensive, So sexual assault was not made evident until she was hospitalized. Her skull had been beaten and broken so horribly that her left eye socket was fractured in 21 places. The eyeball was dislodged from it. There was an estimated total blood loss of between 75 and 80 percent and internal bleeding from the beatings. Along with that, she suffered severe hypothermia, brain damage and shock. She was completely unresponsive and barely clinging to life. I'm sure Elise will expand on this, but as far as evidence gathered at the scene went, investigators knew that one person's footprints were along with the drag marks that led to where the assault happened. They also gathered evidence after being hospitalized that there was DNA from one male donor, sperm donor, found vaginally as well as a sock on the sock at the scene. Police, uh, I read, also found two samples of hair on the suspect. Working on the assumption that this attack was related to the others that evening, the presumption was that she would not survive. I mean, with 80%, 75-80% blood loss, it's a pretty safe assumption. And I, I, can't, I can't fault the police in this one thing for quickly changing tactics to find whoever killed, you know, assuming that she's not going to survive they're looking for the person who committed this who attempted to kill her they're reacting to that yeah i i understand how they change tactics from you know this is a mob scene to a a killing a, a murder essentially attempted murder so they have you know just a few boys in in custody at this point they quickly begin getting names of other boys who were in this group uh, from the five that are in custody and they start rounding up more boys in question to see if they can figure out who did this. 
Among several brought in from April 19th, April 20th, and April 21st were Stephen Lopez, who was also age 14, Antron McRae, who's 15, Yusuf Salam, 15, Corey, or as he was going by at that time, Carrie Wise, age 16, Clarence Thomas, 14, Jermaine Robinson, 15, Antonio Montalvo, 18, and Orlando Escobar, 16. All of these young men were named as having been involved in the group that ran wild through the park that night. But something that I found very interesting is that minors age 16 and above could be questioned without parent permission in the state of New York, at least at that time. I don't know if that's changed. Elise, is that is that different now? Um, I believe so, but okay. I don't quote me on that. Okay. Yeah, I couldn't see. I and I. I mean, I could have done some ducking, but I didn't see anything that con. You know, came up contrary to that. I don't understand how it was possible at that time, though, that a, a person of sixteen is considered able to represent themselves. Yeah, I don't know. I I don't. I don't know. I just, I, it blows the mind, I think, because at 16 years old, you do a lot of stupid things. Oh, yeah. And you have no business making adult decisions for yourself in a legal manner. You just don't. So at that time, initially, Yusef was brought in. He said he was 16. And I guess he had like a bus pass, some type of identification that stated that as well. It was later that it, after his mother was notified and she showed up hours later that she clarified he's not 16. He's 15. Oh. Um, so initially he was he was treated as an adult who who could make his own decisions. However, all of these men, essentially, all of these boys were treated as men in this case. Even the 14 year olds went hours without a family member or any legal representation in police custody being questioned. All of them did. So as I mentioned, two of them were only 14 years old. Corey Wise, who was 16, stated he was not involved at all, but he only accompanied his friend Yusuf, so he wasn't alone. Something to note about Corey is that he was diagnosed and, and has been diagnosed with a learning disability, and he suffered from hearing loss. Yet, no parent was there with him and no lawyer was there with him to help him through the questioning. Hmm. I don't know that they asked if he had a, a learning disability or if he felt competent to answer these questions for himself. Or that they cared. Or that they cared, exactly. Or that they cared. Because really what it boiled down to was that they were they were just trying to get to the bottom of this. Yeah. And some of the boys did have their parents in some shape or form. Some of them had, you know, a family member. One had a sister, one had a grandmother present for a little while. However, the police, I'm, I'm not sure that they took into consideration that these boys had no business answering any of these questions on their own. No matter who the victim was or what what happened to those victims uh, like we said previously in the previous episode the police aren't your friends no they're there to do a job unfortunately a yeah. yeah unfortunately they're not especially when they are heated and there's pressure of now we have a sexual assault and a woman who's on death's door 
And this was a large police response. There were many districts that came in and responded to this because of the location of it and because of the amount of calls that came into dispatch stating that, you know, there's a large group of, of boys going through the park creating, you know, chaos. There was a large presence. People were heated. And I believe that that got the better of them in this case, especially as the district attorney, as you know, the the questioning furthers. I believe that there was a lot of mishandling in in the the way that they went about this. So these these boys are being asked to clarify who was there at the park, who participated in the attacks, and then asked to give statements about the beating and sexual attack of the female jogging victim. Statements were made verbally as well as written over the course of hours these boys were in custody. And here's where the stories greatly vary between what the police state happened and what the suspects state happened. I've watched hours of confession tapes um, from multiple sources. I've watched the Netflix docuseries When They See Us, and I will reiterate, I tried to watch that before. I mentioned that in the Dixmore Five, and Elise, I know you've watched it. I had a hard time watching it. I had a very hard time getting through it. I had a hard time watching these boys give their you know, videotape statements. It affected me to watch it and to see all of this play out. I have watched, you know, the news media reports from that time. I've read news articles. It is a mess. And when the police claim that these boys were questioned and treated fairly, I don't buy it. And that's my opinion. I know that I'm not, there's opinions that they were treated perfectly fine and that all of this proceeded the right way and, and nobody's at fault. I don't buy it. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. That's my personal opinion. But what I saw was that it was not handled correctly. The boys look terrified. They look sleep-deprived. They look glazed over. They look like they would have said that they had just killed their grandmothers for a, a Kit Kat bar just to get something to eat and get these people off their backs. Yeah. And again, that's my opinion. But all of them had that same glazed over, I'm tired, I'm repeating information, I'm going to tell you exactly what you want to hear just so you can shut up and leave me alone and let me go home. That's one of the main interrogation tactics is to deprive you of sleep. Right. Because it makes you break down. It, it, it totally does. And I could see that from all of them. They, I mean, at one point, uh, I believe it's Corey Wise and his is handed a Pepsi can and you could see a hand come into the video and they're like, here, here, take it. Like they're like shoving it. And he's like, okay, let me take it. And then he sets it down. And then maybe somebody motions for him off camera. I don't know. But he's like absentmindedly. He sets the can down and then he picks it back up again. It's a couple seconds later and he opens it and then he sets it down. He never takes a drink from it. Yeah. It, to me, you didn't, he didn't ask for that. He didn't ask for that can of Pepsi. You're trying to show that you were giving him something yeah. to, to, you know, you're not being, uh, you're not withholding food or drink from him. Uh-huh. And then he just sets it down and it's like, it doesn't even exist. If he was thirsty and he asked for it, he would have drank it. Yeah. it. It doesn't make sense that it's just a prop. So 
The police claim the boys, of course, were questioned and they were treated fairly. Once they learned that Yusuf was not 16, they claimed that they stopped the interrogation. They released him to his mother. That was not, you know, that was before hours of interrogation already. I read it. It was like seven-ish hours at this point that he had been in custody before his mom even knew where to find him. They, they didn't even inform her? None of the, I don't believe, there was, what, two parents maybe that were informed? McRae and Santana, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. But the other boys sat there without anybody knowing where they were for a while, hmm. for a good while. Yeah. And I, I wasn't super clear. I don't know if you found it, but it seemed like while they were there, there wasn't even an attempt to notify their parents to like get somebody to come sit with them to be interrogated or anything like that. Yeah, that's I mean, that's what I gathered from from it. It, it sounded like a lack of the proper, you know, proper procedures of when you have somebody in custody who is a minor. Yeah. And they knew most of these were even according to their, you know, 16 and over can be there unaccompanied. Mo a good majority of these boys were under 16. So immediately yeah. they should not have been talked to. They shouldn't have been anything without a parent or legal representation there, yeah. period. Uh, even according to that law, that, that procedure. So they claim that all the boys were notified of their rights and that all the statements verbal, written, or otherwise were freely given in cooperation with police. And of course, all the statements that were given implicated the boys, not only in you know, the attacks, but more importantly, in the sexual assault, because that's really all they were focused on. The female victim was not identified until 12 hours later. So sometime on the 20th of April, while the boys were being held and questioned, she was identified as 26-year-old Trisha Miley. Trisha was reported missing after failing to sh uh, meet up with a friend and who was a coworker. I also read a report that it was her boyfriend. I'm not really sure which, but at least a friend, a coworker, Patrick Garrett. They were supposed to meet around 10 p.m. at her apartment on the ninth, uh, night of the 19th after Miley got home from her usual jog in C Central Park. So it was her usual routine to go for a jog from her apartment building into Central Park. And her usual time for completing this jog was about 40 minutes. So she should have been back. There was a, a report that she saw, you know, a, a person that lived in her building about 8.55 p.m. who saw her leaving. They had a little conversation. She left for her jog. So that she should have been back before 10 p.m. easily to meet oh. up with uh, Patrick Garrett. When she wasn't there and didn't answer her phone when he called her from a pay phone, Garrett looked for her at work the next day and she had still not shown up. There was no word from her. So he reported this to the police who in turn began calling hospitals until they found her. On the night in question, she was seen, like I said, leaving 8.55. So it was uh, also reported that she was kind of a, a competitor. She ran, jogged eight, or I'm sorry, six days out of the, the week. So she was definitely doing this uh, and keeping track of her time. Okay. So she could run a steady eight-minute mile. They presumed that based on where she was found and the attack happened, that from her apartment building to where that happened, she would have been attacked around 9.15 p.m. So that's important um, to remember because keep in mind, as I previously stated on the timeline, there was at least one other attack made by the group of teens. If they were 
connected to her attack. They were also attacking another gentleman in the park at the same time. At the same time. At the same time. They're fast. Right. So what the boys recall from the time spent with the police being questioned strongly differs from that account. They claim that they were coerced. They were threatened. They were beaten. Food was withheld. Sleep withheld. Legal counsel and parental representation withheld, as well as told if they gave up the, the you know, right statement, if they just told them the right information, they could go home. Well, the, not the truth, just the statement. Just the right <laughs> statement. If you name the right yeah. names and you say the right things, yeah. you can go home. You know, truth. Just tell us. Not truth and justice, just statement and justice. Right. right. Okay. <laughs> right. But what is interesting is when you listen to the videotaped recording, you know, of their confessions, of their statements, you can hear the assistant district attorney, are you telling me the truth? Is this the truthful statement? And they're just, they're staring into space. Yes, this is truth. Yes, yes. It it doesn't convince me that what they have given as statements are correct. It also is not going to convince me because the clearest suggestion that this is inaccurate is that the written statements, they're not consistent. Yeah. There are details, timeline, there is a lot that is, is not consistent. Also, how do you be in one place, you know, two places at the same time? You kind of can't. Yeah. Right. So the time inconsistencies are as much as like 45 minutes in some of the cases. Between the kids. Between the The kids. Yeah. Some of them are saying that it happened much later, which it couldn't have happened much later. We know her timeline. Yeah. We know the timeline of the other attacks based off calls to 911. And we know when the police got there. So police started showing up about 930. And while, yes, she wasn't found until 1.30 a.m., at that point, she had lost most of her blood. That probably wouldn't have happened in a very short amount of time. Also, finding her at 1.30 a.m., if, if it had happened later, some of these teens were already in custody. So Kevin Richardson and uh, Raymond Santana were in custody almost immediately from the police showing up. Yeah. That's at 9.30 p.m. If she was attacked at 9.15, mm-hmm. they would have they would have been a part of a brutal beating, brutal beating and sexual attack, you know, sexual assault. And 10 minutes later been found with no blood, no evidence on them and put in police custody after running out of the park. Doesn't make sense. There's also the classic, the boys all claim that they saw what happened And while they were present at the attack, they didn't participate in the attack. Yeah. Antron McRae had the wrong location altogether. (laughs) He stated that it happened in about a seven block difference of location. But it fits their narrative or he fits their narrative. narrative. Corey Wise stated the victim was stabbed with a knife multiple times. There were no knife wounds. No, yeah. There was no mention of a knife by anybody else. Yusuf Salam did not sign a statement or give a videotape statement, but he was mentioned as an attacker by the other boys, so it was just as good. He didn't even have to give a statement. And what they took in a written statement, it 
he didn't sign it. His mom showed up before they got him to sign it, but it was still not consistent with anything. So on April 21st, investigators began to videotape the boys for their official statements. And this was with Assistant District Attorney Elizabeth Lederer. She was leading the questioning. She makes a point at the beginning of every, every video that is made to ask the boys if they were treated fairly up to that point. She also asked them if they were made aware of their rights. And, you know, if, if there's anything that they can, can do for them. Of course, the boys are just like, no, no. I, I mean, yes, I was given my rights. Yes, whatever. Yeah. And mind you, at this point, there were still, I think two of them at this point still had not consulted with a lawyer. Huh. But, you know, they were, they were given all their rights and they were treated fairly. And the fact that this attorney, this district attorney, felt comfortable questioning them, knowing that legal representation should have been given to them. They should have been questioned in front of their parents. Nothing should have been signed before they were able to see their parents or talk to a lawyer. Yeah. Felt very comfortable moving forward with videotaping these confessions, these statements. She starts by asking them the names of who's involved and she wants full names. Most of the time, the boys don't know. She'll ask how they know, you know, how do you know this boy? I've seen him on the street. Yeah. Or, you know, some there might have been this is my friend or my friend knows him or something like that. Uh-huh. But then what I find odd is and and this is just me and it could be nothing, but when you say what's this boy's last name? And they say I don't know. Do you know where he lives? They're giving full ass addresses. Full addresses. Yeah. How do you remember the full address of somebody who's who you don't know? Who you don't know. Yeah. They might live in your building, maybe. And they, you know, they might be in the, you know, the floor down below you and you see them sometimes. Do you know the exact address and and apartment number of where they live and how long they've lived there? Do you know what school they go to? They may not go to your school. How do you know that? But they're able to answer it. They're able to give that information, but they may not know the last name. Yeah. I don't understand that. I couldn't have told you any of my friend's addresses. When I was in, in high school, I wouldn't have known. I would have known their phone number if you'd asked me that because you always remembered a phone number back yeah. before the phones had, you know, contacts. <laughs> but I couldn't have told you anybody's address. I might have been able to tell you the street, maybe. But all of the that's co- what is one consistent thing through all these videos is that these boys didn't know each other necessarily didn't if they knew the first name they didn't know each other that well to know the last name but they all knew the addresses yeah sure just like it it blows my mind because it's like you said i think out of all of the ones that they rounded up literally the only two that had like confirmed friendships with each other were yusuf and Corey. yeah like those were the only two and like that's the only reason Corey was even there right was because of yusuf right so yeah, maybe you know their names because like the police have been feeding them to you right. for the past however many hours. But I like like you said, how do you know this information? Like you've probably never met any of these boys. Right. You're just like like you said, saying what they want you to say. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, it made no sense to me because I was trying to think back, okay. You know, I went I went to school with probably there was like, I think, 400 in our graduating class. And yeah, I could visualize people's faces, 
But even at that time in school, and, and I'll tell you right now, I don't remember hardly anybody's names. But even at that time, I might have been able to tell you their last name, maybe, if we had like classes together. But I could not have told you where anybody lived. I couldn't have rattled off somebody's address if asked, if pressed, if, you know, interrogated. I could have given you directions from my house to their house, maybe if I gave them a ride home. Or I could have said, yeah, I know they walk home in this direction. There's no way in hell I would have been able to say, you know, one, two, three Central Park Avenue or something like that. Never. Never. And it wasn't even without hesitation that these boys were just rattling off these addresses. They weren't like, um, I think, um, maybe no, it was, what is the, and where do they live? Da, 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 da. I, I'm not buying it. I'm just not, it, it's, it's not possible. (laughs) And that's, that is one of the consistent things throughout all of these videotape uh, statements is that I, I started to notice that everybody had an address, but not everybody had a last name. Some people didn't even have a name. They didn't even have a name at all that they remembered, but they could say he lives at this address. Yeah. How? How the hell do uh, yeah, you know that? You don't, you don't remember that because I, I will no. say this, like I can still remember phone numbers and my address, but we always had an address book. Right. Because you don't remember the addresses. Like I remember sitting down and writing out invitations you know, to a birthday party and having to look through the address book of everyone's address. So, I mean, well, phone numbers are different, right? but like, I, yeah, I couldn't tell you. No. And I think in this case in particular, because, and, and I, I say this not as judgment against them, but the reality of it was that a lot of, I think all of these uh, unfortunate suspects and, and victims in this, you know, uh, or, well, they're victims. They are victims. These boys are victims. Um, they were living in the projects. Yeah, They were living in, I mean, in New York in particular, you're going to assume that people are living in apartment buildings. That's, that's just the nature. It's a mm-hmm. big city. Most people do not have their own, um, you know, house. They might have a house that's attached to other houses, you know, and, and, it, it's not it's not like a suburban area where there's, you know, a house over here, a house over there. There's yard, there's parks, there's whatever. These are a lot of kids that grew up in in projects and, you know, housing communities. Yeah. So, yes, again, they may know. Yeah, that kid lived in the uh, apartment building across the street from me or across the corridor from me, maybe even as much as they lived on this floor. I cannot imagine that everybody's going to be like, yes, they lived at this address, this apartment number. No hesitation, nothing. All of them. I can't imagine that. So it it really stuck to me. It really, that really stood out to me. And that was the first thing of how the hell would you get, how would you arrive at that information if it wasn't fed to you? Yeah. I, I don't know. And maybe I'm hung up on it too much. It's just, it's really, I don't get it. So, As I mentioned, the police hyper-focus on the sexual assault victim. But as we know, there are other victims in this timeline. They're they're really ignored. And there really aren't even questions asked about them in the statements. There are, you know, as far in as much as they talk about timeline, there are some mentions of where, you know, some of the attacks take place. But it always is in relation to how they get to the sexual assault victim. 
it's not really it's not really, you know, tell me the events of the night type questioning, Mm -hmm. which I, I found also very strange because if you are looking to hold these kids, these, you know, teenagers accountable for the crimes that they committed that night, it should be for every crime. It should not be focused on just the homicide, a potential homicide, which at that point they were just operating as this is a homicide. This is going to be a homicide. You can't assume that all of these attacks are related. New York is a big city. Central Park is is kind of a dangerous place at night. I don't, you know, I I wouldn't feel comfortable going there by myself jogging. Wouldn't matter how long I'd lived in the city or or what I was comfortable with. I don't think that I would ever be comfortable to do that. To assume that all of these things are connected, you've maybe got a 50-50 chance of that, I think, in in my head. Because a lot of crimes happen in that area at you know at the same time. I don't think that's a far reach. And some of them are more violent than others. So it seemed to me that instead of trying to connect that these were all you know, related crimes by the same same group of people, they jumped to the conclusion that they were all related crimes and that these boys were responsible because they were simply there. The qu- The line of questioning through that is kind of what I found. It seemed like they were just jumping to, well, we know you were there for these other, you know, assaults on these, the bicyclists, the joggers and everything. But tell us about the sexual assault. We want the details. We want all of the details about the sexual assault. And again, as I stated, the boys look like they've just been through it. They they definitely look like they are devoid of emotion at this point. They're just relaying words. They're not crying. None of them are crying. That's what I think one of the other biggest takeaways for me was nobody was upset. Nobody was visibly crying or, you know, even hesitating when relaying this information, their statements. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. If somebody is accusing you of this type of violent crime, I don't understand how you from, unless it was from lack of sleep, I don't understand how you could just relay this and not be upset because you're, you're sleep deprived. You're at that point, the adrenaline and the, you know, the self-preserving, things that your body does to keep you safe, you've run out of all of that energy. You've spent it. So at this point, you're just surviving. And it's whatever I've got to say to get out of here. And that's just what they look like to me, is just devoid of any emotion. So from all of this, it emerges that the five boys supposedly responsible for the sexual assault and beating of Trisha Miley were Raymond Santana, Kevin Richardson, Antron McRae, Yusef Salam, and Corey Weiss. These five were also noted to be connected to the muggings and the attacks, which in itself contradicts the timeline, but you know, that was overlooked. That just didn't fit the narrative. So maybe these five just separated from the group and they weren't involved in the other ones. But then they were involved in the other attacks, so nobody really takes the time to look at where she was attacked and where the last attack was known at 9.15. Between 9.15 and 
somehow nobody's putting together that, you know, all of her injuries and her assault only took 10 minutes. Yeah. It, it wasn't, it wasn't convenient to the narrative. So it wasn't addressed. Yeah. The takeaway was that the other boys in custody were connected to the other beatings and attacks, but presumably not the sexual assault. And some of them later on were convicted of the attacks. So something that plays heavily into this case is the public opinion that was garnered by the media. And as I mentioned, the media took this and ran with it. All of the boys' names were released by news outlets. Never mind that they were minors at the time. Mm-hmm. And as we discussed in the last episode um, with the Dixmore Five, it wasn't presented in a way that stated they were charged or being held on suspicion. No, they were named. And they were named as if they were guilty and already convicted. Yeah. Trisha Miley, as the victim, was spared that. She was given the chance to remain anonymous. Um, aside from two mentions in small, small local outlets, and what I read it is that was because those outlets were, you know, hey, if the boy's names got mentioned, why does she get to remain anonymous? Yeah. In this case, all of them deserve to remain anonymous. None of them should have been named. None. No. And it, it was. it's unfortunate that her name was leaked, but it also, their names should have never been brought up. Never. All the public needed to know was that suspects were in custody and there were charges being filed. Yeah. Shouldn't have known anything else. So, like I said, for, for the most part, her name was not mentioned. And it definitely was not mentioned nationally. So, it was just those two small, like, local outlets that released her name. It was not nationally. So, for years, her name was not mentioned. And, mm. and Elise will talk more about that in the you know, portion of the trial and, and on there's a little bit more to add to that. Another thing that I, I debated on, on bringing up, but just two days after the attack, a news article was released on the front page of the New York daily news with headlines reading quote, central park horror, wolf packs, prey, female jogger near death after savage attack by roving gang End quote. So in this article, the teens were compared to animals with a bloodlust-like need to just rip apart anything they came across. And what I debated about mentioning was that there was also a full one-page advertisement put in several national newspapers by none other than Donald Trump, who at the time was a real estate mogul in New York City. In this article, he paid around $85,000 to get out to the public. 12 days after the attacks, Trisha Miley regain consciousness started to regain consciousness come out of her coma around day 10 after the attacks so this is day 12 after the attacks he called for the return of the death penalty and basically he he crucified these young boys uh-huh. he stated that you know person is killed a life should be taken in in response to that there was no you know, let justice take its course. Let's see what the courts, you know, what the outcome is. Yeah. It's, you know, it was preying on people's um, emotional, state. emotional. Yeah. Just a frenzy of yeah. rally our police officers. There's so much crime in this city and we're all, you know, exposed and we're all going to die. And I'll link the the article. It's, it's just, 
you overstepped your bounds. I'm sorry. You had no business putting that out there. What the hell do you have to do with this? You have nothing to do with it. You had, you had an opinion and you basically called for these boys who were children to be killed Mm -hmm. because of something that hadn't even been determined yet. Yeah. You haven't even, they haven't even been to trial. They haven't been judged by, you know, jury their peers the other thing too is like what you had mentioned was how they always call like minorities savages yes. or thugs or gangsters yep. um but that the media has always portrayed that and that that always hits a a sore spot with me you know what yeah. I mean? it's just like they're always called animals right always it's, it's awesome yeah not it, right yeah it's it's just like further perpetuating that narrative of, mm-hmm. you know, the big, angry, scary black man right. that's, or you know, the, out to get the white woman. Yeah. Right. Um, and like, it's just, it's so dangerous to use that kind of language. It always, it, it always brings me back to when, you know, the Native Americans were persecuted and they're always savages. called savages. You know what I mean? They're always portrayed, even in our cartoons, they were portrayed that way, you know, yeah. always looking at, uh, you know, white people and then looking to attack the wagons you know it, it why were they provoked that way you know what i mean it's just but it was their narrative yeah and how they've always looked at like native americans as savages and things like that and it just what it does is it paints them as not human yeah and, and that's so ex- i mean that's exactly a the way point. to justify yeah you know the death penalty or right even harsher punishment it's it sucks <laughs> Yeah, it does. And and I think what's unfortunate in this case, too, is there were, and like I said, I watched a lot of, of video coverage of this, and there were a lot of, um, you know, group discussions of, you know, the news would go out and they would gather just a group of people and they would, they would start discussing this and get, you know, public opinion on, on the case. And it really seemed to me that even doing that was there was conflicting parties dividing racial lines and even going out and doing that you would see people of color on one side of the screen and you know caucasian people white people on another side of the screen and even that divided them and it was it was so it was rough to look at that because it is so still very relevant today Uh it's tough to look at footage from 1989 and realize that most people have not evolved from that and i'm looking at video proof of it that those opinions are still they were alive and well then they're still alive and well now of you know the division of you know how the how the media goes out and portrays these things plays a direct correlation in that division. And it was very unfortunate seeing that. It it made me very sad. The, all of this makes me very sad. But yeah, it it was hard to read those things because you're right. They have that certain those keywords, those certain things that they will put in there every time. Mm-hmm. And it is it, it's almost it's almost seen so much that you you're just like, you're just kind of reading over it. Yeah. And it, it you don't realize how subliminal it, is. Oh, it and, is. And it's now, now that we're, you know, a little more focused on changing that narrative. When I read it, you, I see it 
10 years ago, maybe I would have kind of maybe shrugged and been like, that's harsh, but I don't know that I would have processed it as, as I do now and, and been, you know, be that upset about how that was portrayed. And that was just across the board. That was one small article one day that came out in, in the paper it was daily. It was national. That same narrative was just used across the board. These yeah. boys were animals. They were looking to just go out and attack savages. They were, you know, bloodlust. Yeah. It was, there was senseless crimes. It was senseless. I don't know why they were doing it. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Maybe it was two boys that actually led the attack. And then other people were like, oh shit, what's going on? I don't know. You know, what do we do? I don't know why other people join in. Why do, why do you know, mom mentality? Yeah, How does that happen? You know, there are a lot of unknowns to that. I don't think that at any point of anything I watched either in the investigation, in the statements, did anybody say, why were you guys out doing this? What was this? They mentioned it in, in When They See Us. They talked about Wildman. But, and you know, the, the one lead attorney didn't know what that was and she kept asking everybody what's wilding what's wilding and i was like okay but in the in the actual statements in the actual recorded videotaped statements nobody mentions hey what were you guys doing yeah like why were you beating up people riding on their bicycles why are you trying what are you trying to do like who who gathered all you guys like what happened what let's get to the bottom of this where did this really come from i don't know couldn't find a couldn't find an explanation. Couldn't find even anybody asking to try to explain it. Yeah. It just everybody was like, well, there they were, and then they raped somebody. Yeah. It's like well, there was so much more that happened there, people. There was so much more. But this is this is what we're gonna focus on, and we're gonna make sure that somebody hangs for it, essentially. So so that is the lead up to all of this. There is so much more that Elise is going to get into, and we will release that in our next episode. So that'll be next week. So please stay tuned for more. Like I said, there's a lot and we're going to unpack it all. So as always, we want to thank everybody for tuning in. And thank you, Elise, for being with us and doing this with us. And we hope that everyone stays safe. And as always, stay out of the damn woods. We'll see you next week, guys. What Happens in the Woods is an independent podcast and is managed and produced by Gospel for the Rebels, LLC. Research and content are presented by host Jessica, with all editing and producing done by your favorite resident techie, Bryce. We believe in transparency and will always list our sources and information in our episode notes. We are always looking for new cases and stories to tell. We welcome your interaction with us on Facebook and Instagram at WHIT Podcast and at Twitter, What Happens in the Woods, INT2. Or if you prefer, our website is whathappensinthewoods.com. The campfire is open to all. Thank you for your continued support of our podcast. If you love us and want to continue to hear us bring you episodes, please share and like us wherever you can. But the best way to help us grow is to hit all five stars and review us on whatever platform you get your podcast fix. Until we meet again, campers, 
Stay safe and stay out of the damn woods.